All right, well, good morning, Anchor. My name's Joel, like Matt just said. Thanks for having me. I'm going to pray in a second, but before I do, I just want to really say thank you for having me. Uh, it's a real joy of mine to come here and teach God, God's Word to you. Uh, I've been cheering on Anchor from the sidelines since you guys began. Uh, I remember when Matt came and he preached a really heart-wrenching sermon to a church I was at a few years ago in the book of Jonah and just convicted my heart to love this city like Jesus loves this city. So I'm thankful for Anchor. I'm thankful for you guys. I love you guys because you love Jesus. And that's who we're going to pray to right now. So if you're the praying type, please bow your heads with me as I pray to our good God. Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you so much that through it you reveal yourself to us. Lord, we thank you that not only you are a God that creates, but you're a God that saves. And so Lord, I just pray right now as we come to your word, Lord, that you may teach us. Lord, that you may change us. Lord, that you may move us to worship your son, Jesus and to value him more than anything else in this world. And we pray this in his name and to his fame. Amen. Quick question. What do you value in life? What do you value in life? Maybe you value your health, your wealth, your relationships, your job, your income. What do you value in life? If you're unsure what you do, let me give you a diagnostic question to help you answer that question. The diagnostic question is this, what are you willing to make sacrifices for? What are you willing to make sacrifices for? Let me give you an example. So like Matt said, I'm a father. I have two little boys. I call them the deacon boys. They're not so little anymore. But anyway, I, I love them and I value them. And as a result, I make sacrifices for them. I'll give you a few examples. Number one, if you're a parent, you know this. I sacrifice silence. I sacrifice sleep. I sacrifice personal space. I sacrifice my breakfast, up and goes, and my desire not to watch the movie Frozen once, <laughs> let alone thousands of times. You know, because I love my children, I value them, I make sacrifices for them. Like, what about you? What do you value? What do you make sacrifices for? Maybe you sacrifice sleeping in, eating chocolate, time, so you can go to the gym and get that rig that you desire. Maybe you sacrifice your Friday nights, your Saturday nights, and friendships so you can try and get that university average that you hope for. Or maybe you sacrifice your holidays and your days off so you can get that promotion that you've been dreaming about. What do you value? What are you willing to make sacrifices for? I mean, this is a really important question. It's actually a question that's been asked for many years. And actually, in 2011, the OECD, which is the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development, came up with a survey, an online survey, known as the Better Life Survey. And they basically asked this question to people all around the world, what do you value in life? Since 2011, about 100,000 people in the world have um, participated in this survey, and as a result, we get to see what does the world value. What we can see is that Europe values mainly health, America mainly uh, values life satisfaction, and us Aussies, we value work-life balance. What's really interesting about this survey, and it's logical and it makes sense, is the correlation between a country's circumstances and what they value. So if you live in an undeveloped country, you value food, shelter, safety. While if you live in a developed nation, you value life satisfaction or work-life balance. You know, this question, what do we value in life? There is a diversity of answers to it. 
And I think what this survey reveals, and it makes me question, it should make you question, is what I value in life actually that important? Is what I value in life actually that important? You see, this question of what do you value, it's an incredibly important question. Because what you value shapes how you live. It's an important question that I want us to wrestle with today from God's Word. From Mark chapter 14, verses 1 to 26. Because in this part of the Scriptures, we get introduced to three people and what they value. And I think by looking at these three people, we can reflect and think about our life and what we value. So we're going to look at Mark 14, verses 1 to 26. We're going to look at three different people. I'll give them to you now so you know them. We're going to look at a scandalous woman. We're going to look at a shady snitch. And we're going to look at a sacrificial saviour. Scandalous woman, shady snitch, sacrificial saviour. So if you have your Bibles, keep them open at chapter 14, verse 1 of Mark's Gospel. So what happens in verses 1 and 2? Well, I won't read them out to you again, but this gives us context to this story. It tells us the timing. So what's going on? Well, it's the time of Passover and the festival of unleavened bread. You see, at this point in time of the year, all the Jews would travel into Jerusalem because this is an important time of the year for them. Historians estimate that thousands, maybe tens of thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands of people flocked to Jerusalem at this time of the year. You see, Passover is like equivalent to for Australians like Anzac Day and like Australia Day combined. Like this is a big event. And so there's lots of people here in Jerusalem as they think and celebrate how God saved his people from Egypt. What else do we learn though? We learn in verse 2 as well, gives us the context that Jesus has a target on his back. The religious leaders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law wanted to kill Jesus. So that's the context to our story. Now let's look at verse 3, and let's get introduced to the scandalous woman that we learn about. So if you have your Bible, look at verse 3. While he, that's Jesus, was in Bethany, that's a small town just outside of Jerusalem, reclining at the table in the home of Simon the leper. Now heads up, Simon most likely was a leper, and he's been healed by Jesus because it's unusual for lepers to have people over for dinner. Anyway, so what goes on, what we see here, a woman came with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume, made a pure nard, she broke the jar and poured the perfume on his head. Last year, uh, for my birthday, apparently I wasn't smelling too well, so my mum bought me some perfume, I mean cologne, manly cologne, my mum bought me some cologne, um, and you know, like when you get cologne or perfume, what do you do, you wear it before you go out, and so that's what I did, so I you know, made sure I smelt nice. But little did I know, but my little um, two-year-old son Isaac was watching me each morning as I did this. And so when I wasn't watching one morning, he crawled into the bathroom, got out my cologne and smashed it on the floor and then rubbed it all over his half-naked body. Now, <laughs> he, he didn't get hurt, right? He didn't get cuts from the glass or anything, but he smelled like a dude and it was so weird. It was so strange. Freaked me out. Now... What my son did was pretty harmless, but what this woman did was scandalous, and for multiple reasons. Let me explain them to you, okay? The first reason why it's scandalous is that she broke social boundaries. You see, back then, that was a no-no for her to interrupt men having dinner together unless you're providing food. So that's the first reason why this is scandalous. Secondly, though, she breaks an expensive bottle of perfume. Like, it's average at a year's wages. That's like 70 grand equivalent to us today. Thirdly, though, not only does she give Jesus like a sample like they do at Maya, but she pulls it all over his head. 
Like, and the perfume bottles back then would have been about three or four times bigger than the little ones that we have today. Like, Jesus would have smelt for days. And fair enough, his disciples, they're annoyed. You know, they're frustrated. Look what they say in response to this woman. In verse 4, it says, Some of those present, that's the disciples, we learned that in John chapter 12, were saying indignantly to one another, Why waste this perfume? It could have been sold for more than a year's wages and the money given to the poor, and they rebuked her harshly. They have a point, don't they? Like, like what is this woman doing? Like, like a year's wages this perfume is worth. Like, this is scandalous. Like, this is ridiculous. You know, like if I had a bottle of perfume right here worth a year's wages, worth 70 grand, and you just heard Matt talk last week about the vision here at Anchor and how we need people to support Anchor. Imagine if I got that, smashed it on the floor, and rubbed it all over Matt's head. Like, now maybe you might think that's a good thing, depending on how well you think Matt smells, but at the same time, you'd be like, that is ridiculous. What a waste of money. And so these disciples, they rebuke this woman. And you know what? You sort of expect Jesus to do the same, don't you? Especially considering in Mark chapter 10, he tells a rich man to sell everything he has and give it to the poor. But what does Jesus do? Well, have a look. What does Jesus do? Verse 8, he says, leave her alone. Why are you bothering her? She's done a beautiful thing to me. A a beautiful thing? Like, it's a scandalous thing. Like, what is Jesus going on about? Well, look what he says. He says, the poor you'll always have with you. And you can help them anytime you want, but you will not always have me. Like just, just think about that for a second. How ridiculous, how scandalous is Jesus' words? He seemed a bit crazy. In 2013, the famous soccer player David Beckham played for uh, the Paris football club called PSG. And for a period of time, he decided to donate his wages to the poor children of Paris. as about $6.5 million dollars. In response to this, one of his teammates, a guy called Zlatan Ibrahimovic, a world-class player, uh, said this in regards to David's decision. Zlatan said this. He's a good man. He said, I heard Beckham's decision and it made me think, who is more deserving of all the money that I, Zlatan, am paid? The answer is Zlatan. The children of Paris are not leading League One in goals this season. I am. I have 20 goals. The next best players have 12. 12! If anything, the children of Paris should be giving me even more money for having the privilege of being in the same city as my incredible quality. And so should David Beckham. Call it a zlaritable donation. Now, we hear that, and we're like, man, this guy's ridiculous. Like, that's absurd. But isn't Jesus being just as crazy, just as absurd? Like, like, what is going on here? Isn't Jesus contradicting himself? Like, even if you're new to church, you would have heard Jesus teaching on the great commandments. You know, would have heard how he said that the greatest commandment is to love your God of all your heart, mind, and soul. And then the second greatest commandment is to love your neighbor as yourself. So, like, isn't Jesus contradicting himself here by not loving his neighbors who are poor? Well, he would be. Unless what this woman's actions is doing right here is actually obeying the first commandment. You see, this wouldn't be crazy if this woman wasn't wasting perfume, but instead she was worshipping God. And that's what she's doing here. She's worshipping Jesus, who is God. That should blow your mind. 
But maybe you're thinking, but, but Joel, like, you know, we were worshiping God before by singing songs. That didn't cost much money. Like, people worship God not by necessarily doing stuff like this. So, like, why does she worship God in such an expensive way? Good question. Well, the text tells us. Jesus says to us, he says in verse 8, She did what she could. She poured perfume on my body beforehand to prepare me for burial. You see, in Mark's gospel, over and over and over again, Jesus says to his disciples, that's his friends, his followers, he's like, guys, I'm going to go to Jerusalem. I'm going to suffer, I'm going to die, and I'm going to resurrect. And his disciples are like, nah, Jesus, nah. They don't believe him. Yet this woman does believe him. And so in case you missed it, in this act, she prepares Jesus' body for burial. You see, back then, for important people, after you die and you've been buried in the ground, people would come and they'd put perfume and spices on your body as, as your body starts to stink. And so this woman goes and does it to Jesus because she believes that he is going to die, unlike the disciples. But you know what's interesting? I don't know if you, if you knew this, but normally when you go and put perfume on a dead corpse, you wait till it's dead. But this woman doesn't. Why? Because not only does she believe he's going to die, she believes he's going to rise. That there won't be time for her to go put the perfume on his body because he won't be in the tomb for that long. That he won't stink or decay. You see, this woman, she believes in the gospel. That Jesus is going to live, suffer, die, but also rise again. And that's why Jesus says in verse 9, he says this thing. He says, truly I tell you, wherever the gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Now maybe you're thinking, Joel, I don't see this in the text. Where are you getting this from? Well, there's a parallel account of this story in John chapter 12. And what we get told is that these disciples, are the followers at the table, sorry, and that this woman is Mary. Mary, the brother of Lazarus. And that Lazarus is also at this table after being resurrected only a few days before. So she's seen Jesus raise people from the dead and she believes that he can raise himself from the dead as well. You see, in this woman we meet someone who values Jesus and she is willing to give up wealth, social etiquette, opposition for him. But before we move on into the see the shady snitch, there's just one thing I just want to quickly talk about. Maybe some of you are thinking, Joel, is this story a paradigm for how we should use our money? You know, that we shouldn't give it to the poor, but instead we should just give it to spiritual matters. Well, no. This is a, a once-off event led by the Spirit at a point in time in history where this woman prepares Jesus' body for burial. It's, it's not a paradigm, it's not a framework for how we use our money. Now maybe you're wondering, but why does she use such an expensive bottle of perfume? We well, see back then, the, the value of that perfume that you use represents the value of the person whom you put it on. And so it makes sense, doesn't it, that Jesus gets the most expensive perfume in the world, like the God of the universe? Like it would be criminal if he had like links or like brute for men. That would just be wrong. So this story is not about how we use our money. Instead, it's about value. and It's about how this woman values Jesus. She's the first person, the scandalous woman. Let's now have a look at the second person, which is the shady snitch. We're going to learn about him in verses 10. Let's have a look there. Says this, then Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, this is our shady snitch, went to the chief priests to betray Jesus to them. They were delighted to hear this and promised to give him money. So he watched for an opportunity to hand him over. When I read this, it bums me out. 
And I'm guessing it bums you out too. Like, this is devastating that one of Jesus' closest friends would betray him. And I don't know about you, but after I read that, part of me is like, can't someone just warn Jesus about what's going to occur? Like, that's the next part you want to see in the narrative. You want to see one of the other disciples going to Jesus and say, Jesus, your boy Judas, he's going to betray you. Don't have him over for dinner. Kick him out now. But instead, what we see here is a story about preparations for Passover, which makes you think, like, what's the point of this story? Like, why is it here? Well, I've been reflecting and thinking, and I think the reason why this story about preparations for Passover is here is to teach us that Jesus is in control. You see, he's in control of trying to find a large room in Jerusalem where it's packed out and everyone is trying to slaughter a lamb and get a, and get a room together to have a Passover meal. He can get a room like that. He's in control of his disciples being able to stab a lamb. But more than that, he's in control of one of his disciples. He's going to stab him in the back. You see, read with me. Look at verses 17 to 21. When evening came, Jesus arrived with the twelve while they were reclined at the table eating, Jesus said, Truly I tell you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They, they were sad and, and one by one said to him, Surely you do not mean me. Now you can picture this, can't you? You can picture you know, Peter saying, Jesus, not me. You can picture John saying, Jesus, not me. You can even picture Judas lying between his teeth. It says, Jesus, not me. But then look what it says. Jesus says, It is one of the twelve one who dips bread into the bowl with me. The Son of Man will go just as it is written about him, but woe to that man who betrays the Son of Man. It would be better for him if he had not been born. This is incredible. Jesus is in control. He knew about this betrayal. He's always known about this betrayal. Matter of fact, it fulfills Scripture. Most likely Psalm 41, we're told. This is incredible. Like, can you imagine this? Can you imagine becoming friends with someone for three years and as you become friends with them, you know that they're going to betray you? Can you imagine for three years eating with someone, walking with someone, laughing with someone, sharing memories with someone, walking on water in front of people and, and celebrating that together and know he's going to betray you? This breaks me. It also reminds me of the goodness of our Savior and how he has things in control. You see, Judas, he's a slimy, he's not a slimy, he's a shady snitch. He values money over Jesus and he's willing to sacrifice Jesus to get it. You see, Judas, he made a big mistake in that he valued money over Jesus. But I think the root of his mistake is something we can learn from. You see, ultimately what Judas did is that he overvalued something of insignificant value. He overvalued something of insignificant value. The world's most expensive signature is William Shakespeare's. You've probably heard of him. Uh, his signature is worth about $3 million. The second most valuable signature in the world, though, worth around about $800,000, is a guy called Button Gwinnett. Now, maybe you never heard of Button Gwinnett, and there's good reasons why. Um, to be honest, he's just a bit of a, a loser. Like, he, he lived in England. Sorry, he was born in England. Then he moved to the States. Uh, the only thing he accumulated in his life was debt. Uh, and, and the way he died basically summarizes his life. Get this. He died losing a gun jewel. He just had a, didn't have a, a good life. That makes you wonder, why is this guy's signature so famous or so, so, worth so much? Well, the one thing that he did do in his life is that he, was, he actually signed the Declaration of Independence in the United States. 
And you see, in the States, there's collectors who try and collect all the signatures of the people who signed the Declaration of Independence. Now, because Bunn was a bit of a loser and he didn't do much, his signature is not really found on many things. Matter of fact, there's only about 51 copies of his signature. And get this, majority of them are IOUs. So his signature is worth a lot of money. And it's a bit ridiculous. I learned about these facts on the show Radio Lab, and uh, the journalist, uh, he, was, he got to see one of these signatures in the flesh. And what he said is um, when he was in front of this signature, this piece of paper worth close to a million dollars, what he was tempted to do was grab it and run. But instead, what he was tempted to do was just pick it up and just tear it and rip it to pieces. Because he thought it was ridiculous how overvalued something of insignificant value was. See, Judas made the exact same mistake, didn't he? He overvalued something of insignificant value. He valued money instead of Jesus. I don't know about you, but when I read this part in the Bible, like, it, it, just, it just breaks me. It just makes me think, Judas, why are you such an idiot? You know, like, why do you care about money when you have the God of the universe in front of you? Why do you overvalue something of such insignificant value? But you know what? Then it, then it dawns on me. As I reflect and I, and I look at the two people of this story and I, and I look at this scandalous woman and this shady snitch, it dawns on me that I'm more like this shady snitch than I am like that scandalous woman. It, it dawns on me that all the time I overvalue things of insignificant value. It dawns on me that unfortunately my heart has sacrificed Jesus for other things including wealth. If I'm honest, I'm more like Judas than I am like this woman. And if you're honest, you are too. You see, maybe right now you're, you're sacrificing Jesus for other things in your life. Maybe you're sacrificing Jesus for a bitter and unforgiving heart. Maybe you're sacrificing Jesus for a sexual relationship that he doesn't approve of. Maybe you're sacrificing Jesus for that career and that income that you dream of and deserve. Putting aside your, your family and your church that God wants you to serve and love. I think if we're honest, even though we might want to be like this scandalous woman, majority of us, our heart's default is to be like this shady snitch. It's to be like Judas. The reality is each of us has betrayed Jesus. Each of us has overvalued things of insignificant value. Each of us has laid Jesus aside for other things in our life. And as disgusted as we might be by Judas, the reality is if we turn the focus from him to us, the disgust remains in regards to our life and our actions. See, the reality is we're like Judas and we deserve judgment like Judas. The reality is, is that we need a saviour, we need a redeemer, we need someone to take the judgment that we deserve. We need a Passover lamb, just like the Jews needed a Passover lamb. We need a sacrificial saviour, and that is who we're going to see right now. The third character that we see from this passage. Look at verses 22 to 24. This is Jesus, the sacrificial saviour. While they were eating, Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take it, this is my body. Then he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they drank from it. This is the blood of the, of the covenant which is poured out for many. You see, what's going on here is Jesus is talking about his upcoming death once again, and he's using props to explain it. 
what he's basically saying to his disciples is, hey, take this bread, because it represents my body that's going to be broken for you at the cross. Take this cup of wine, because it represents my blood that's going to be poured out for you at the cross. You see, church, Jesus knew the cross was coming. He knew his betrayal was coming, but he also knew the cross was coming. You see, he knew why he had to go to the cross, so that his blood may be shed for many, so he may be the ultimate Passover lamb, so that he may be a ransom for many. You see, like, the blood of Jesus, it's, it's not a popular topic today in our society. Like, it's something that is like, politically incorrect to talk about. Even Christians, unfortunately, try and get rid of it and try and say, we don't want this bloody cross religion. And yet we have to be obsessed about the blood of Jesus because the Bible is obsessed about the blood of Jesus. You see, what we get told in the Scriptures is that by Jesus' blood, we are justified, blessed, redeemed, reconciled, cleansed, and forgiven. You see, the disciples, they didn't understand what was going on here with this woman. They didn't understand why that perfume was poured out and they thought it was a, a waste. They didn't get that that was a beautiful thing. I wonder if we don't get how the cross is a beautiful thing. I wonder if we don't get at the cross where liquid more expensive, more valuable than any perfume was poured out for all people, for us, for many. I wonder if we see that the cross is a beautiful thing and I wonder if we are obsessed with the blood of Jesus. Okay, you can never forget this time today or any time when you take the Lord's Supper, what it means, what it represents, and what Jesus did for you at the cross. At the cross where Jesus' blood was shed for my betrayal, for your betrayal, for even Judas's betrayal. May we never stop talking about the blood of Jesus. Because the blood of Jesus, not only does it mean that we're saved and redeemed through him, but it also means that we're valuable. That we're valuable. Like I don't, I don't know who you are, I don't know what you've done or what's been done to you, but the cross tells you that you are valuable to Jesus. Now get this, it's not because you're a good person or you've done good things, but it's because of the worth of Jesus' blood. That you are valuable to him. That's the good news of the gospel. And how good is that news? And how freeing is it that you can find your value in Jesus rather than anything else in this world? How freeing is that? You see, our world, right, our world says to you what it matters is what you think about yourself. And I think that's some good advice or some helpful advice. But let's be honest. If objectively you want to be smart, you need a smart person to say that you're smart. If you objectively want to be a good person, you need a good person to say you're good. And it's the same, if you want to be valuable, you need a valuable person to say that you are valuable. And that is exactly what occurs at the cross. We're the most valuable person in the universe. Blood cries out, you are mine. You are unique, you are valuable, you are special. Don't forget that. Because of the blood of Jesus and what that is worth. See, this passage, what we see here is we see three different people. And what do we see? We see a woman that values Jesus and sacrificed wealth for him. We see Judas who values money and sacrifices Jesus for it. And we see Jesus who values us and sacrifices himself for us. How amazing is that? 
How amazing is that? But, but how does this passage maybe apply to us right now? Like, what's the go-home message? How do we apply this? Well, the author Mark, he, he constructs his scriptures in, a, in, a, in, a, in its purposeful way. And right here, he puts these two people, this woman and Judas, next to one another to rhetorically ask us, who are we going to be like? Who are we going to be like? Are we going to be like this woman who bows down to Jesus and worships him? Are we going to be like this snitch who betrays Jesus? Today, if you're not, if you're not a follower of Jesus, can I appeal to your heart to be like this woman? Can I appeal to you to bow down before Jesus, to ignore what other people are thinking, and to value your king, to worship him and give your life to him? And if you are a follower of Jesus, can I continue to encourage you to be like this scandalous woman? Can I encourage you to sacrifice wealth, to sacrifice opposition, social recognition, so that you may value Jesus? I watched the video that you guys shared on Facebook about Anchor Church and the vision. It's a great vision. I love it. But if Anchor wants to multiply disciples, if it wants to multiply communities and then churches, then the people of Anchor, the church of Anchor, needs to be more scandalous like this woman. It needs to be like this woman. But warning, I don't want you to leave here thinking about this woman. You see, we should feel the weight of this challenge and think, am I like this woman or am I like Judas? I want to be like this woman, but we, we don't want to stop there. We want to keep on going because it'd be a tragedy if we were to leave here thinking about this woman's sacrifice when Jesus' sacrifice is so much greater. It'd be a tragedy if we leave here going, this woman is awesome, I want to be like her. Instead of saying, Jesus is awesome, I want to value him. I want to value him. You see, this passage is a passage that tells us that you and I are valuable and that it asks us, though, is Jesus valuable to us? Is Jesus valuable to us? You see, I reckon maybe one reason why a lot of people don't follow Jesus or don't continue to follow Jesus or do it well is because they don't value him. They undervalue him. They undervalue something of incredible worth and significance. There's an artist called Banksy. Uh, he's from uh, Bristol in England. Uh, he's a famous artist, and some of his pieces have sold for like millions of dollars. And he's a great artist, and his work is really incredible. But most people think that the reason why his uh, artwork is so valuable is because no one knows who he is. You see, he's not an artist that goes around to art galleries and, and tells everyone what work is his, but instead he does his work in secret in the city at night when no one sees him. In 2013, at New York uh, Central Park, Banksy created some artwork on some canvases, 25 of them, and then he set up a store, which he, well, he didn't man, and he paid someone to do, and then they sold his artwork for $80 a piece. It didn't, had no sign, it didn't say like Banksy's artwork or anything, it was just artwork. Anyway, that day, a few people bought some of the artwork, some people negotiated so they can get it cheaper than $80. The next day, Banksy put up a video on YouTube claiming that it was his work. The art world went mad. And the next year, someone who bought two pieces of art for $160 sold it for $300,000. On that day, the people of New York, they undervalued something of incredible value. I wonder if we do the same when it comes to Jesus. 
What if we overvalue things of insignificant value and then undervalue him who's of incredible value? You see, I wonder if we understand that just like some kids in undeveloped nations need a shelter, we need a savior. We need Jesus. And so may we value him. He said, today what we're seeing in this passage is, is I ask this question, what do you value? And what we're seeing here is we're seeing a scandalous woman who values Jesus and sacrifices wealth for him. We see this shady snitch who values wealth and sacrifices Jesus for him. And we see Jesus, the sacrificial savior who values us and sacrifices himself for us. As we leave here this morning, I've got a statement and a question that I want you to keep in your mind. A statement and a question. The statement is this. Because of the blood of Jesus, you are valuable. Because of the blood of Jesus, you are valuable. And the question is this. Do you value him? Do you value him? Let me pray to close. Father God, we want to thank you so much for your son Jesus. Lord, we thank you so much that at the cross, his blood was poured out. His blood, which is more important, more, got more value than anything in this world. He is God, and yet his blood was shed for us. So we may be forgiven, reconciled, and redeemed as the ultimate Passover sacrifice. Lord, I pray that you help our hearts to value him over the things of this world. Lord, I pray you help us to turn away and stop overvaluing things of insignificant value. But instead, we may value Jesus, our Savior, and our Lord. Lord, please help us in this world that promotes to us all these other things that are important and help us to look to Jesus and give everything for him. And we pray this in his name and for his fame. Amen.